Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Knock that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Decoding the Unknown. This is a long one. Dude, Kevin, I don't know how many pages this is, but the scrolling never seems to end. So sit back, relax. I mean, unless you're driving or whatever. In that case, don't relax too much. Pay attention, because uh, I realize this is a podcast as well. Off to people on like Twitter, like, hey, Simon, listen to you like while I drive hours. Lots of truckers reach out to me, interestingly enough, being like, yeah, I drive a truck across the country and I listen to your show constantly. I have no idea how you make so much stuff. And I'm like, you're very welcome. Um, so yeah, yeah, I mean, relax just a little bit, ease into it, because today we're covering Did the FBI Kill Martin Luther King Jr.? Not really anything relaxing about that, is there? It's pretty big, allegedly, should be thrown in there, like, if we say that they did, which I don't know if they did. I mean, it's all alleged, isn't it? Definitely alleged. Well, let's find out. Kevin, thank you for writing it. If you're new, the format of the show is I've never read this before. Brand new script from Kevin. I don't really know anything about this. This, I feel, is one of those things Americans might be like, Simon, you know nothing. And I'm like, yeah, but this is your history, isn't it? I know my British history. Sort of, not really. I mean, bits of it. But that's the history I learned, because in case you couldn't tell, I'm British. So let's just jump in. It is time, dear listener. To venture once more into the breach and examine the world of outrageous sounding conspiracy theories. It it does sound outrageous, right? You're saying the FBI killed Martin Luther King. Is there a difference? This is how ignorant I am of this. I'm not sure if there's a difference between Martin Luther King and Martin Luther King Jr. I get the feeling that, you know, Martin Luther King, the civil rights activist and stuff. Um, <laughs> and I know he is that. But even that, I'm like, careful, Simon, what if he's not that? What if it's a different dude? What if you're confusing him with some other dude? Like, that's how little I know about this. But I get the feeling that this is the main dude, right? Because if it was just, like, his son or whatever... Then, uh, I don't know, did his son do so? I know nothing! I'm sorry, I'll let Kevin tell the bloody story. But it doesn't sound insane, because we know, like, CIA, especially back in the day, got up to all sorts of bonkers shit, because no one was keeping an eye on them. Researching the assassinations of John F. Kennedy already rocked my world, as I discovered that there is a preponderance of evidence indicating that Lee Harvey Oswald did not act alone, but I assumed that was an outlier. 
Most of the famous American conspiracy theories took place decades before I was born. That makes sense because most of America took place decades or even centuries before I was born. Good observation right there. The problem with that is unless someone is motivated to research a particular topic, they all kind of get lumped together. The moon landing, JFK assassination, alien spacecraft, Area 51. These conspiracies were taught to us as footnotes, if at all. Why would they be taught to you? I mean, we don't teach conspiracy theories in school. That's the point of school. They teach you facts. It's not like you go into physics and they're like, okay, well, today, class, what we're going to do is we're going to teach you about how the earth is flat and also possibly round. Although you do do that, America, with the Bible shit, don't you, in some states? They're like, yeah, what we're going to do is we're going to teach you that Jesus was uh, immaculately conceived and the earth is like 6,000. Why have I turned Australian? I don't know. But look, alongside evolution, they teaches creationism, which is just bizarre. Because it's like, yeah, yeah, sure. Teach one in religious class and one in science class. Because one is science and one is religion. It's not that complicated. Is in America? Why do you have to be like this? These weren't complex historical events worthy of greater understanding. They were outlandish conspiracies to be used as punchlines in pop culture. To be fair, in the vast majority of cases, that's an accurate assessment. We really did land on the moon, and extraterrestrials have never been to Nevada. Besides, with decades to uncover these conspiracies before I would have even learned about them, then obviously everyone would have known the truth already, right? Even if the full conspiracy had yet to be uncovered, if there was any merit to these ideas, then of course those details would have been in the history books. But there, of course, was nothing there. Except that JFK one, right? Whereas like that, that main narrative, it's just like, there's obviously more going on. Do I know what it is? Absolutely not. But is there more? Oh my God. Like, look how much random like bits of evidence and stuff and look how it just doesn't add up together it's like there's definitely something there don't know what it is and that's what kevin and i discovered together and i had like inklings of that before and kevin was like no 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 this isn't real and i was like well, i don't know kevin i feel like I'm, i feel like this is the the conspiracy theory which is like there's some truth to that and then me and kevin ended the episode together being like oh shit that's one of my favorite decoding the unknowns ever because instead of it just being like yeah 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 there's not ghosts and aliens aren't real um is it was like oh my god okay <laughs> this conspiracy theory is real why perhaps this was just the result of shitty american public schooling or maybe it's because i grew up near boston a city for viewing a 1965 law to desegregate schools as a friendly suggestion rather than a legally binding mandate either way in school i was taught that king was a civil rights leader nailed it who was assassinated by james earl ray an escaped convict and unhinged racist who wanted to stop the civil rights movement martin luther king jr day has been a federal holiday since the year after i was born and yet that's pretty much all i was ever taught about him isn't this i know it's i was gonna say isn't this an important part of american history i feel like the civil rights movement that's a pretty big deal in in american history it's just my outsider's perspective but uh, then i'm sure there's like tons of shit in british history that is like super important that just never came up in school because school is like not that long and it's like you can only study certain things like i don't think i ever really studied the first or the second world war but my entire gcse's which is like that i think it's between 14 and 15 around those ages or 14 to 16 like two years of school we studied like for ages the period between the wars and don't get me wrong it's super fascinating but it was weird like not studying the two wars that was the last major thing i remember studying super interesting the period between the wars though <laughs> it sounds really boring but it's like that nah, some wild shit went on never was it mentioned that king was standing in the room when president lyndon johnson signed the voting rights act of 1965 and that he had moved on to larger goals 
In an I-67 report, the staff of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, a civil rights group of which he was president, King stated, quote, uh, We have moved from the era of civil rights to the era of human rights, an era where we are called upon to raise certain basic questions about the whole society. We have been in a reform movement, but after Selma and the Voting Rights Bill, we moved into a new era, which must be the era of revolution. We must recognize that we can't solve our problem now until there is a radical redistribution of economic and political power. This means a revolution of values and other things. We must now see that the evils of racism, economic exploitation, and militarism are all tied together. You can't really get rid of one without getting rid of the others. The whole structure of American life must be changed. America is a hypocritical nation, and we must put our own house in order. Jesus, Kevin, when you're pulling quotes that are like 20 lines long. No wonder this piece is. It's gonna be like seven hours, Kevin! What are you doing to me? I've got a life to live, Kevin! There's more to life than... There is more to life than work. I'm just joking. <laughs> it was one thing Owen King was fighting to have a 95-year-old amendment to the Constitution actually be enforced, but he was in the process of transitioning into a much larger threat to the status quo of an American society. It was the sort of threat that those with money and power might have been motivated to eliminate, far more motivated than a simple racist who probably didn't want to go back to the prison from which he had escaped by assassinating one of the most high-profile individuals in the country. Yeah, sounds like a great way to not go back to prison is to, while you've escaped from prison, assassinate someone. That's gonna, maybe you'll go to, you the only place you're going is worse prison or death. But in our foreplay, our story will begin with the official telling of the events of the assassination and end with a 1999 court verdict in which a jury found that King's assassination was the result of a conspiracy involving government agencies. No, they did. Was this a civil case or a criminal case? Because huge difference. Because civil cases balance the probabilities. They say it was more likely that there was some shady shit going on than it wasn't. But criminal case means it's like they were absolutely certain. Which is like, that's a much higher burden of proof. I am... I know nothing about this, and if that's the case, that's insane. And somewhere along the way, King will receive a letter from the FBI telling him in so many words, if you don't fucking kill yourself, we'll make you live to regret it. Oh, I do know about that piece of the story, where they tried to- Oh my god. Phone calls. Well, that was nice. It wasn't a delivery person. It's actually just my wife and my kids. Uh, my daughter's school is like super close to where I work and she always picks them up after lunch and she's always like, I'll come back see you, I'll come back see you. She never does. And today she came. That was super nice. And uh, now they are gone. And we continue walking in Memphis. It all began on February the 1st, 1968, two months before the assassination took place. Echel Cole and Robert Walker were sanitation workers for the city of Memphis, Tennessee. There were already tensions between sanitation workers and Mayor Henry Loeb. Not only were the working conditions terrible and unsafe, but the black sanitation workers were paid significantly less than their white counterparts performing the same job. In one rather blatant incident, severe weather forced all the workers to be sent home for the day. The black employees only received two hours of pay for the day, while the white ones received the full day's pay. When was this? 1968? This is not, this is like less than 20 years before I was born, which like blows my mind. I remember I went to Atlanta and there was this big exhibition and it had all these, um, I'm pretty sure I've told this story before, but it had all these photos from like the, not the civil rights era, but like when people were fi fighting for civil rights, right? And they had like, you know, the water fountains and the bathrooms and they were like separate for black and white people. And I was like, wow, these photos look like really good though. Did they like colorize these or like enhance them somehow? And then it's like, no, 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 this was the 60s. And it's like, 
What the fuck, man? My parents were like teenagers in the 60s. I mean, they did live in America, but it's like still, it's recent history. It's crazy. <laughs> like the past was the worst. The day of February the 1st was another day of terrible weather. The rains were so severe that the streets were flooding and the sewers were overflowing. At around 4.20pm, a time that held no significance until 1971, so I don't want to hear any jokes about it, Eccle and Robert decided to take refuge in the back of the garbage truck to avoid the rain and spark up. Sorry, I know I said, Kevin said no jokes. If you've somehow never seen a garbage truck in your life before and are wondering why they didn't go sit in the front, those seats were occupied by the driver and their co-worker. These trucks normally have one or two people hanging off the back of the truck, so they quickly hop off, toss the trash bags in, and hop back on so the truck can slowly move forward. Yes, thank you, Kevin. We are all... Is there anyone here who's unfamiliar with how, uh, like, uh, what do we call them? They're not trash. They're, um, garbage bins? Garbage trucks? Garbage lorries? Garbage lorries! Bin lorries! That's what we call them in Britain. Bin lorries. Garbage trucks is the American version. There's a TV show for children called Trash Truck, which my daughter really likes. And we were walking to school this morning. I take her to school in the morning. My wife picks her up. And because it's in the middle of the day, I gotta work and shit. Um, but like, we'll take her to school every time, anytime she sees like it could be a recycling truck, it could be a bin truck, whatever. She'll be like, Trash Truck! And I'm like, Yeah, 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 close. Close. Suddenly, if for no reason, the trash truck's compactor malfunctions and began a compacting cycle. No! Oh my god! What? This process is supposed to only be started manually to prevent this exact sort of thing from happening, but the truck seemed to have a mind of its own. When the sound of the compactor's engine entered the tra truck's cab, the driver immediately stopped and jumped out of his seat, running to the back to hit the emergency stop button. It didn't help, and the two young men were crushed to death. Oh my god, that's crazy. What the fuck? Ten, I, that is like nightmare way to go. Being tr crushed by a, comp a trash compactor? Fuck me. Ten days after the tragic deaths of Eccle and Robert, the union held a meeting and voted to go on strike, demanding safer working conditions. It took ten days? I'll be like, I'm fucking off this afternoon, mate. This is insane. Two of my friends got crushed in their truck. I'm not working until you sort the trucks out. The union held a meeting and voted to go on strike, demanding safer working conditions, better pay, and some goddamn city-issued uniforms so they wouldn't have to go home to their families with their civilian clothes smelling like sewage. Considering two people had just died, their wages were so low that many full-time sanitation workers qualified for welfare and food stamps, and bus drivers wouldn't allow them to take public transportation because they smelled so bad, these demands were extremely reasonable. Demands well beyond that would still be considered extremely reasonable. The only problem with the union attempting to make these demands was that the city didn't actually recognize the union. That and the newly elected mayor Loeb had been the previous head of the sanitation department where he was responsible for creating many of the conditions they were now complaining about. The union had expected the city to take immediate action, what with the horrific deaths and all. Loeb decided to go in the opposite direction by being a completely unreasonable douchebag who refused to negotiate. On February the 12th, the day after the union declared the strike, 930 out of 1,100 sanitation workers didn't show up for work. Some of those that did show up also walked out once they heard about the strike. It's like everyone showed up, no one showed up for work except for the people who didn't know they weren't supposed to show up for work and then they all fucked off home. Except for Jeff, who's like, I love picking up trash. 
When the mayor refused to meet the union, protesters marched from the union hall to a meeting place at the Memphis City Council. There they found about 50 police officers waiting for them. Loeb led the strikers to a nearby auditorium so that they could have a friendly little chat. And by friendly, I mean Loeb grabbed the microphone from the union organizer and yelled at them to get back to work. Why are they doing this? Just stay at home. Just be like, I'm on strike, I'm not getting paid. I'm gonna stay at home and, I don't know, watch some telly or whatever. Crack a beer in the morning. Why not? You're on strike. And it's not like you're striking about some non-essential service. It's trash collection. Very, very quickly, there's going to be a lot of pressure on the mayor to get that shit sorted because people aren't going to be happy. Like, if no one ever came to collect the trash from my apartment building, it would build up real fast. They come, I think, two or three times a week. And if they stopped coming, very quickly, I'd be like, Hey, stop paying the more, you dickheads! <laughs> and then they would come and everything would be better. Especially if I heard that two of them had been crushed, I'd be like, hey, stop paying them all and fix those fucking trucks. Fucking mayor, you douchebag. This outburst was met with choruses of laughter and people chanting boo. Loeb went on to make several public statements about the strike, and in each and every one, he looked like a right twat. Within three days of the strike beginning, there were over 10,000 tons of garbage piling up in the streets of Memphis. So Loeb began to ask strike breakers to go and pick up the trash. While all of this had been going on, King was working on creating the Poor People's Campaign. It was to be a diverse, multiracial coalition of poor people from all across the country. Based on census data, anywhere from 22 to 33 percent of Americans were living below the poverty line at the time. Jeez. Jesus, that's like one in five to one in three people. So it shouldn't have been too hard to find people that agreed with sentiments that King espoused in the quote at the beginning of the episode. Yeah, honestly, it sounded quite reasonable. So I, I get why governments like status quo and like that governments get a lot of money from rich people to like the, their status quo. But uh, this seems quite reasonable. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I'm with these guys. I'm like, fuck this, man. This is not right. Outside of the obvious racism. Since the Memphis sanitation strike was the fusion of a civil rights matter and a property issue, it caught the attention of King. On March the 18th, over a month into the strike, he made his first visit to Memphis. While there, he spoke before a crowd of 25,000 protesters and activists calling for a citywide shutdown. He wanted others, like the schools, to go on strike in solidarity with the sanitation workers. After his speech, he promised to return to Memphis for a few days on the 22nd to lead a peaceful protest through the city. I know that fans of this channel typically don't believe in things like ghosts, aliens, and magic. <laughs> As they shouldn't. But if for some reason you do happen to believe in signs, the protesters in Memphis were about to get one. On average, Memphis receives about three inches of snow over the entire year. That protest march had to be cancelled because they were hit by a massive snowstorm that dumped over 17 inches of snow on the city. Undeterred, the protesters opted to reschedule the protest from March the 28th rather than cancelling it entirely. Is that foreshadowing that this protest's not going to go very well, Kevin? Th oh yeah, the next... <laughs> I just read the next title, subtitle, which is in giant bold letters. The March 28th Riot. When the march began on March 28th, that's confusing, isn't it? It was a massive turnout. City officials estimated that 22,000 students had skipped school in order to participate in the protest. King was late, and when he arrived, the crowd was already on the verge of chaos. It was meant to be a peaceful protest, as that was how they had achieved results in the past. However, unbeknownst to King, there was a division among the African-American residents of Memphis. The peaceful protests had been infiltrated by a militant black power group based in Memphis known as the Invaders. As the march, cool name though, right? <laughs> I 
<laughs> Millers and groups, awesome. But I mean, the invaders. It sounds like a like a 1970s rock band. As the march proceeded through downtown, members of the invaders began smashing the windows to every storefront and looting everything in sight. I take back what I said, they're not cool. There were 600 police officers on duty at the protest, nearly the entire police force, and they wasted no time launching tear gas at the crowds. Despite his protestations, King was escorted away to a hotel by those close to him for fear that the police would come after him the hardest. Live media coverage focused on the actions of, quote, Negro youths making little to no comments about the use of police force. Not even when the cameras showed the bloodied faces of African-American men who were being arrested. Their only comments with regards to the show of force were about the use of tear gas, with one correspondent calmly stating live on air, Here comes the tear gas, and this reporter just got a sting of it. <laughs> oh no! Boo-hoo! When the dust had settled, there were a total of 276 people arrested and 60 injured during the riot. There were also a single fatality, 16-year-old Larry Payne. There were conflicting reports over exactly what had happened to Larry, by which I mean the police officer who killed him said one thing and literally every eyewitness said something else. I didn't kill him! A <laughs> hundred people, yes you fucking did. I hope he goes to prison. According to witnesses, Larry came up from his basement in the projects to see what was going on when Officer Leslie Dean Jones pressed his sawed-off shotgun barrel against Larry's stomach. Why the fuck has a police officer got a sawed-off shotgun? That's mental. Larry put up his hands and asked the officer not to shoot, but he pulled the trigger anyway. According to Leslie, Larry was holding a butcher's knife, a claim that every witness stated was false. The county court did not press charges and the Department of Justice said that there was insufficient evidence to prosecute him for civil rights abuses. Are you fucking shitting me? There's a dead body, and everyone says he had a sawn-off shotgun and he shot him in the gut completely unprovoked. Fuck you, Department of Justice. Stuff like this is why the police now have body cams. That night, Mayor Loeb declared martial law, instated a 7pm curfew, and brought in about 4,000 members of the National Guard. Keep in mind that everything that happened in Memphis, up to and including the riot, looting, and fatal shooting of a minor, could have been completely avoided if Loeb had just paid his fucking employees enough to not to need to go on welfare. Though he initially was reluctant on account of just having one of the single worst days of activism in a 13-year-long career, King decided to return to Memphis. If the Poor People's Campaign and his fight for economic justice were going to succeed, then he needed to follow through in supporting the sanitation strikers. On April 30, he returned to Memphis, where he delivered his famous I have been to the mountaintop speech. There had been a bomb threat, but King was not concerned. He had been the recipient of death threats for well over a decade, and had even survived an assassination attempt ten years prior when a woman stabbed him at a book signing. The tip of the blade had been touching his aorta, and after the surgery, the doctor told him that if he had sneezed during the hours awaiting surgery, the blade would have punctured his heart, and he would have drowned in his own blood. But let this serve as a reminder to all of you that if you ever find yourself stabbed or otherwise punctured with something, don't pull the object out. Whatever it is that stabbed you is the only thing plugging the wound and keeping you from bleeding out. And trying to remove it may cause even more damage. Because of the position of the knife, it took hours of open chest surgery for doctors to safely remove the blade that had lodged in King. So, back to the speech. He spoke of the bomb threat, of his own mortality, and even of the time when he was almost stabbed to death. The conclusion of the speech is seen as being almost prophetic, with King concluding, and get ready for another massive quote here from Gavin, and then I got to Memphis, and some began to say threats, or talks about the threats that were out. What would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop, and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm concerned about that now. 
I just want to do God's will, and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. That was the last public speech that he would ever make. The assassination. James Elray was staying in Memphis at the New Rebel Motel. On the night of April the 3rd, he learned King was in town staying at the Lorraine Motel. Footage of King and his entourage at the hotel are aired on the 10 o'clock news, and the room number 306 was plainly visible in the footage. His location was also published the next day in the Commercial Appeal, a Memphis Daily newspaper. This is like... I've been to things where it's like they want to keep stuff private, and I feel like this is something that the media shouldn't publish. Like, uh, I went to a conference once, and in, in checking in, they were like, okay, we need to know like, for the duration of the or like event or whatever it was. They're like, you can't post when you are to social media. And it's like, literally, within about four hours, there was a crap of people outside from like, it was like a influencer thing, because someone obviously had, and then someone had worked it out. And it's like, these things leak, but it's like, you should be more careful with this. You shouldn't be broadcasting it on the news. He's had bomb threats and stuff. Don't tell people where he is. What's wrong with you? That's not ideal, but it also wasn't surprising. King, accompanied by fellow activist Ralph, Ralph Abernathy, among others, stayed in that room so often that it was nicknamed the King Abernathy Suite. How about, guys? Rotate where you stay. Not just rooms, but also motels. I'm sure there are many. On the afternoon, like everyone knows, don't create patterns. That's not some like complicated spy shit, it's just basics, and you should probably have some complicated spy shit going on anyway. Because you're bloody Martin Luther King. On the afternoon of April the 4th, Ray checked out of the new Rebel Motel and traveled across town. At 3.30pm, Ray checked into Bessie Brewer's rooming house, located on the second floor of a building above Jim's Grill and across from the Lorraine Motel. Using the fake name of John Willard, Ray rented room 8. He asked to change room to 5B, which directly overlooked the Lorraine Motel, but he found that the window from the communal bathroom had the best line of sight of room 306. At 4pm, he traveled to the York Arms Company to buy what must have been an incredible pair of binoculars with a cost of $41.55, or over $350 in today's money. Binoculars get mad expensive. That was like something I didn't expect. But they make amazing binoculars that cost... I think you can get binoculars that are literally thousands of pounds. It's crazy. He then returned to the rooming house to wait. King and Abernathy were preparing to have dinner at the home of a local minister before attending an event that night. King walked out onto the balcony of the motel room to talk to some of his associates, including his driver, musician Ben Branch, who would be performing at the event that night, and also Reverend Jesse Jackson. According to Jackson, King's last words before the assassination were, Ben, make sure you play Take My Hand, Precious Lord, in the meeting tonight. Play it real pretty. At 6.01 p.m., Ray fired a single bullet from his Remington 760 Game Master 3006. The bullet hit King in the right cheek at a downward trajectory, breaking his jaw and several vertebrae. Oh, it also severed his jugular and finally lodged in his shoulder. Abernathy heard the shot and rushed from the hotel room out to the balcony. King was in critical condition, but he was still alive. Approximately two minutes later, Ray was seen carrying a green blanket from the boarding room down the street. He was spooked by something, allegedly the sight of a police cruiser, and dropped the blanket in front of the store Canip's Amusement Company before returning to his white Ford Mustang that was parked on the street and fleeing the scene. The store owner informed police of this at 6.08. Fifteen minutes after the bullet was fired, King arrived at the nearby St. Joseph's Hospital. Doctors tried to resuscitate him, but he never regained consciousness. At 7.05pm, 
Martin Luther King Jr. was declared dead. But about half an hour before that, police arrived at Kniep's amusement company to investigate the bundle that Ray had dropped on the sidewalk. After unwrapping the blanket, they found that Ray had handed them all the evidence they would need on a silver platter. The bundle he had dropped contained his suitcase and the Remington rifle. Inside the suitcase, they found the binoculars, a radio, and the commercial appeal news story that contained King's location. This is remarkably convenient. And there was some sort of clothing and a couple of cans of beer there too, but that's far less incriminating. The owner of Kniep's had seen Ray drive away in the white Mustang, and police were able to learn from investigating the rooming house that John Willard of 5B drove such a car, though they had yet to discover that this was not his real name. By 15 that night, the bundle of evidence that Ray had left behind was handed over to the FBI. While Ray had already found his way to Mississippi by this point, this was not yet known to law enforcement, and it is seen as highly unusual that the FBI would have gotten involved so quickly. The FBI generally dealt with interstate crime, terrorism, and financial crimes, especially those involving federally insured banks. I agree that it was a little weird for them to be quickly commandeering the investigation of a murder of someone who wasn't a federal employee, but King was a prominent public figure and political force, so it's not necessarily unreasonable. Yeah, I get that the FBI has these like special jurisdictions and stuff, but aren't they also called in for like just generally bigger cases? Like if like, I guess then these are federal employees, just thinking if the president gets assassinated, it's not gonna be like local police looking into that shit, it's gonna be the FBI, right? Even though it was in one place and there's like no state line crossing and all that stuff. Like for big crimes, they get in on the big crimes, at least judging by movies I've seen. <laughs> It's a little suspicious, but of all the things we'll talk about involving the FBI today, this decision was by far the least suspicious, so I'm willing to give it a pass. As reports of the assassination began hitting the news, riots broke out across America in over 110 major cities. Washington, D.C. alone saw over 6,000 arrests and 1,000 injured as a result of the riots. Bobby Kennedy was scheduled to have a campaign rally in the heart of Indianapolis ghetto that night while campaigning for the Democratic presidential nomination. When his plane landed in Indianapolis, he was informed of the assassination, despite everything around him, saying that he should not attend the rally and the police warning him that both a riot was likely and they didn't have enough people to protect him, Bobby decided to attend anyway. He refused the notes that his press secretary and speechwriter prepared for him and decided to simply take the stage and wing it. <laughs> Generally terrible advice, but I imagine he did well, right? By any estimation, this was a disaster waiting to happen. Few names are more synonymous with the idea of white privilege than Kennedy. I mean, the year after this, Ted Kennedy drove drunk off a bridge, killing his mistress, yet he remained a senator for the next 80 years or something. And there, in the middle of the ghetto, while race riots were raging across the nation, Kennedy was about to be the one to break the news to a predominantly black audience that King had been shot and killed. Yeah, this does just sound like a terrible idea, doesn't it? As Kennedy informed the audience that King had been assassinated, a cacophony of cries and wails rose up from the crowd. What followed is regarded as one of the greatest speeches in American history, a speech in which he called for peace, love, and compassion. It was also the first time he spoke publicly about the death of his brother, JFK, who had been killed over five years earlier. Wow, dude, you turn that shit around. That's kind of legendary. Yeah, cool, good for you. Perhaps more important than what he said was how he said it. There was no doubt from the audience about his sincerity, likely aided by the fact that he was speaking to them without any remarks prepared. Bobby only spoke for five minutes. By the end of his speech, Indianapolis was left as one of few major cities which did not riot. Unfortunately, as heartwarming as that may have been, there was still a killer on the loose, and it was going to take what was the FBI's largest ever investigation at the time to track down this criminal genius. Was he really a criminal genius? 
He bought a rifle, changed his name, and then shot a dude from across the street. Genius? Really? International Manhunt Ray had a solid head start on his escape. He had immediately left the rooming house where he was staying and had driven 11 hours on back roads to get to the place he had been staying in Atlanta. Once there, he abandoned his Mustang, wiping it clean of fingerprints, grabbed some things from his room, swung by the cleaners to pick up his laundry, and took a Greyhound bus to Detroit. That's upwards of a 19-hour bus ride. If you've never taken a Greyhound, I think Simon will agree with me when I say 0 out of 10 would not recommend. I would. I've taken many Greyhounds. They used to, I've talked about this before for sure, but they used to do this pass thing. So I went to a America. Uh, I think I was like 21. Yeah, I was just 21 because I could just drink. Uh, me and Mason and I, we bought these like month-long Greyhound buses and travelled all over the show. And it was, oh, they're not a way to travel. It was, it was so grim. The travelling was so grim. I thought it would be like, I did, we have Interrail Pass, which is you could buy a, a, a month-long unlimited rail ticket basically and travel all around europe and that was amazing and i did that the year or two before that this the the, the greyhound buses were a little bit different <laughs> and by a little bit different i mean a lot a lot worse but options are limited when you're being hunted by the fbi on april the 6th two days after the assassination of king ray's bus arrived in detroit from there, he took a taxi to Canada so he could lay low for a while and try to obtain a passport. His ultimate goal was to travel somewhere in Africa that didn't have an extradition treaty with the United States, most likely Rhodesia, which is modern-day Zimbabwe. This is not a bad plan. I was kind of making fun of Kevin for the criminal genius reply, uh, remark. But this guy's actually making a pretty solid effort at, uh, at running away, because normally people get caught fairly instantly. They're taking the back roads, ditching the car, wiping the prints. Uh, I wouldn't... Uh, going back to your house, I think, was a bad idea. I'd have just, like, burned the car or dumped it in a lake or something. But um, then getting the bus and trying to get a passport and out of the country and then to a different country is, is pretty big brain. Maybe should go on south, though. I feel like getting out of Mexico and a passport in Mexico would be a little easier than Canada, right? Meanwhile, the FBI had been investigating the evidence left behind in Memphis. They were operating under the belief that the assassination was a conspiracy between three men. First, there was John Willard, the man who had rented room 5B of the rooming house. Then there was Harvey Lomare, the man that had purchased the Remington 3006 from Air Marine Supply Company at a mall in Alabama. And finally, there was Eric S. Gold. There were laundry tags on the clothes left behind from Home Service Laundry in Los Angeles, and Gold was the name on the receipts. A week after the assassination, the FBI found the abandoned white Mustang registered to Galt in a parking lot in Atlanta. There was a sticker in the window that showed the car had been serviced in Los Angeles a couple of months prior. They simultaneously tried to track his activities in LA and Atlanta, learning more about the suspected killer, Eric Galt. He had taken dancing lessons, enrolled in the International School of Bartending, and taken a couple of classes from the Locksmithing Institute. Who are these people? Are these all his fake identities that he's just built back personas for? Authorities were able to attain a photo of Galt from the School of Bartending, and investigating his home city of Atlanta, they found a map of the city that seemed to show that he was stalking King. Circled on the map were four locations. King's home, Ebenezer Baptist Church, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference's headquarters, and the Capitol Homes housing projects. Most importantly, they were able to pull a clear fingerprint from the map. He's going to be found to be the same dude, right? All three of these dudes are going to be one dude. Using the photo obtained from the School of Bartending, the FBI issued a warrant for Galt. However, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover had a hunch. The investigators had already begun to suspect that they were dealing with a single culprit operating under different aliases rather than a conspiracy of three men, largely on account of the fact that every fingerprint they found related to the evidence came from the same person. 
Suspects, suspecting that all three of these names were aliases, Hoover ordered investigators to compare Galt's fingerprints against the database of all known fugitives in the country. How did they do that back in? Did they have computers that could do that back in the day? Because otherwise, what they're going to have like loads of people with like magnifying glasses up to their eyes, like watchmakers looking at cards with fingerprints on them. Oh my god, computers changed the world, didn't they? That's crazy. Now, you might be thinking that that should have been the first thing they did. Yeah, I'm assuming it just would take forever because they didn't have computers. And in modern times, this almost certainly would have been among the first things they did. But in modern times, we have computers, and this was taken base back in 1968. There were over 53,000 known fugitives in the United States at the time, and detectives would have to perform the fingerprint analysis by hand to match Galt's prints with that of a known fugitive. Oh my lord, that's 53,000 people, but they've each got 10 fingers and thumbs. That's gonna take forever. That's an awful lot of fugitives, but they're not all created equal. Yeah, but how do you know it's even from a fugitive? It could just be someone who's in, uh, like, it, it might not even be someone who's got fingerprint registered. When driving from Ohio to Massachusetts, I got a speeding ticket while in New York. I did eventually pay it before the deadline, but for a couple of weeks, my opinion was, fuck you, New York, why would I ever go back there anyway? Had I not paid the speeding ticket, they would have issued a warrant for my arrest and I would technically be on this list of fugitives. Holy shit. Well, that's intense. They, if you don't pay a speeding ticket, they're going to warrant your arrest? I pay my speeding tickets. <laughs> Begrudgingly. <laughs> so even though there were 53,000 fugitives, I'm going to guess they were heavily prioritized by different types of crimes. But what makes you even think this guy's a fugitive? It's gonna, isn't it going to be harder as a fugitive to commit this sort of crime because you can't get a gun, you're going to be suspected like that? Isn't it just more likely? And how many people are fugitives? It's 53,000 in like an entire country. Otherwise, the detectives got damn lucky, because on the second day of the fingerprint comparison, they found Galt's fingerprints matched to those of escaped convict James L. Ray. Well, there you go. <laughs> Color me surprised. This was only about the 700th fingerprint comparison they had done, so finding a match could easily have taken two months instead of two days. The FBI immediately put out mugshot posters of Ray, announcing that Galt was in fact Ray and broadcast his image around the country. They extended the search to Canada and Mexico as well, since there was proof that Ray had visited both countries since escaping from prison. This guy had a good run. Escaping from prison? How do you even leave the country? Are they going to check? On April the 21st, the FBI was able to make an appeal to the public for information on a show aptly named The FBI. The show, which was in its fifth season at that point, was a true crime docuseries featuring dramatizations of real FBI cases, and each episode ended with a quick segment featuring the FBI's current 10 most wanted criminals. Unfortunately, all of this had taken far too long. Ray had already been in Canada for weeks, and just three days after the episode aired, he finally obtained a passport under the name George Sneed, with which he purchased a round-trip ticket from Toronto to London. He obviously had no intention of coming back, but a round-trip ticket is less suspicious. Yes. <laughs> yeah, if you'd like on the run, just just, just buy that, because it, it looks less suspicious, and it's the little bit of extra money is going to be worth it for you. Top tip. However, Ray was just kind of winging it at this point, and not exactly doing a great job of it, despite thus far evading capture. On May the 6th, he exchanged his return ticket to Canada for a ticket to Lisbon, Portugal. He arrived there the next day only to find out that he had missed the boat to Africa. I'm not sure how often these boats left, but they must have been pretty infrequent since 10 days later, Ray flew back to London to try and find another way to reach Rhodesia. That sounds like a bad idea. Just wait. 
Just go find some like, no one knows where you are. Just hole up in some tiny place or move around every few days in the city or the country of Portugal and just wait for the boat. Why are you getting on a plane unnecessarily? That's a bad idea. Also, why are you going to London? I feel like London's communication with America is going to be better than like Portugal's. By May the 27th, weeks after he had originally arrived in Europe, Ray was running out of money. It's here that we get a glimpse into the type of master criminal that was so deftly eluding the FBI. He attempted to rob a jewelry store in Paddington, but the store owners decided they weren't terribly keen on being robbed. Given this rather unexpected resistance, Ray simply ran off empty-handed. Again, Kevin's making fun of him. But I'm like, if you try to rob a jewelry store and the owners put up some form of resistance, leave empty-handed. There are plenty of other jewelry stores where they'll just be like, I'm sorry, take everything. It's, that's a big brain criminal move, to be honest. A week later, he decided to try his hand at crime once again, this time robbing a bank. Why? You don't need that much money. Just stay small time. Just stay small time and escape to Rhodesia. And when you're there, figure that shit out. But you need to get out of London. It seemed that the robbery was going more successfully this time, but the teller accidentally kicked a metal box. The loud noise, which may have sounded like a gunshot, spooked Ray, and he ran off with only £95, the equivalent of about $240 or about $2,000 today. It's a pretty small payday for a bank robbery, but it was enough to keep him afloat a little while longer. But the authorities were closing in. After examining about 175,000 passport applications, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police matched the photo of George Sneed to that of Ray. Checking the address on the passport, they found that he had been living in Canada under the name Paul Bridgman before receiving his passport. You could just... Wait, what's going on? He's just like using a false name in Canada, applies for a passport, and they're like, and here you go. <laughs> The FBI updated his list of aliases, which would result in his arrest a week later, though just barely. On June the 8th, Ray was at uh, England's Heathrow Airport, attempted to purchase a plane ticket to Brussels, Belgium. He nearly was able to leave successfully, but when he gave his passport to an immigration officer, the officer noticed that there was a second passport in Ray's bag. Uh-oh, what have you done? Why do you have your old criminally passport with you? That's insane. Were it not for this act of carelessness, the immigration officer would never have checked the watch and detain list and discovered the name George Sneed had been listed by the FBI. George. Oh, George slash Ray. What the fuck? This is so st amateur shit, dude. So far, even though Kevin doesn't think so, I think your escape was quite good. And now you've just really bungled it, haven't you? He was quickly arrested and the process of extradition began. It took over a month, but he was finally extradited to Memphis, uh, where he got to meet Arthur Haynes Sr., his defense attorney. The defense uh, was being bankrolled by journalist William Bradford Hui in exchange for exclusive book rights. It's, it's weird to me that two men could make a deal over the rights to Ray's story without his knowledge, especially since this was before the Son of Sam laws, but whatever. I have no idea what the Son of Sam laws are. But, um, I mean, I, I think he'd be pretty willing, right? If they're like, yo, we're going to get you a good defense attorney, someone who actually might get you off somehow, or at least not get you with a needle in your arm, or um, in a chamber. But, like, it's it's worth it. So you have to write a book for them. Just, just you, you're going to say yes. On November 10th, a few months after he had arrived back in the United States, Ray discovered that his lawyer felt there was no chance of acquittal, so he fired Haynes. Two days later, an interview had given Huey published was published in Look magazine. This was the public's first introduction to a man known only as Raoul, who we'll get to shortly. Okay, wait, who's Raoul? <laughs> I thought that was Ray's pen name or something. In February 1969, Ray hired a new lawyer, Percy Foreman. Foreman was famous for defending 778 accused murderers and getting 705 of them acquitted. Dude, that is a serious track record. 
If I ever murder someone, that's who I want. I'll be like, Ray, sorry, Percy, I'm flying you out from the 1970s. I need you to defend me. I've murdered Percy. Sorry. Uh, but Foreman said the case was hopeless and convinced Ray to submit a guilty plea to avoid the death penalty. On March 10th, Ray pled guilty to the murder of Martin Luther King Jr. and was sentenced to 99 years in prison. That's the official version of everything that happens and it could have been the end of the story however just three days after pleading guilty ray again fired his lawyer and recanted his confession claiming that he was coerced into pleading guilty for the rest of his life he would maintain that he had not shot king and was an unknowing accomplice in the assassination and this brings us to the matter of ray's side of the story james earl ray's story james earl ray was born March the 10th, 1928. This means he entered his guilty plea on his 41st birthday. So, happy birthday. He was born in Illinois as the oldest of nine children, but his family relocated to Missouri to escape law enforcement after his father wrote a bad check. This seems like a huge reaction to what would have probably been a modest fine, but who am I to question his decisions? I was just thinking he wrote a bad check. Family, we have to go on the run. Oh, God. What's that show? with the guy from Arrested Development where he goes on the run from the cartels. I've not seen it, but it's been on my... It's one of those shows which is like, yeah, I think I'm going to really enjoy this, but I've just never got around to watching it. Um, I don't remember, but he goes on the run. <laughs> it's like, that's a reason to go on the run when the cartels are after you. It's like, oh, well, I just didn't have enough money in my account and I didn't realize. And it's like, we're leaving for Mexico. Ironically, where the cartels are. At the age of 12, Ray dropped out of school and he joined the military at the close of World War II when he was roughly 17. He was stationed in West Germany, but military life didn't suit him. He was constantly drunk and at one point escaped from a stockade, though why he was being detained isn't clear. Wait, like a stockade? Like, what's a stockade? Isn't a stockade where they put your head in your arms through those things and then they lock it down and people throw vegetables at you? Stockade. A barrier formed of upright wooden posts, especially as defense against attack or a means of controlling animals. Okay. Uh, so he's in some sort of prison, I guess. He didn't have his arms. Oh, that's the stocks. Not a stockade. My bad. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Or is that just a British thing? You see them like in old towns. <laughs> it's really weird. It would be one thing if this guy was like Sterling Archer, a severe alcoholic. It was the best at what he did, but he absolutely was not. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you're an alcoholic, but you're the best, so we have to put up with you. <laughs> And it's like, no, you're just a severe alcoholic and it just makes you a bit more shit at everything. <laughs> like with most people. Sterling Archer's from that Archer TV show, right? It's, he's the cartoon spy. I really enjoyed that show. I was watching it with my wife and she just didn't like it as much as me. So we stopped watching it. But I think I'll watch that by myself because it's, it, it, I really enjoyed it. It was very funny. As a soldier, Ray was pretty much the worst. He received the lowest possible passing grade on his marksmanship test, and when he was dishonorably discharged in 1948, it was for ineptitude and lack of ability. <laughs> ah, why are you getting dishonorable? You're just shit. You're just shit, Ray. This is a bit surprising since he spoke with his brother John about his time serving in the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS, the precursor to the CIA. Ray described the OSS as being like the Mafia, saying once you're in, you're never really allowed to leave. This is the first part of the story that there's no confirmation of, but even if Ray really was in the OSS, he wouldn't have been recruited because of his incredible abilities, it would have been because he was expendable. Allegedly, he was subjected to hypnosis and, hypnosis and psychoactive drugs, like a prototype for the MKUltra program that the CIA would begin a few years later. While all this is theoretically possible, it's unlikely it could ever be proven or disproven. It does seem unlikely though, doesn't it? It seems like one of those guys is like, yeah, I was in the army. That's so. 
Yeah, I was in the SAS. Oh, yeah, I saved the Queen many times. It's like, no, you didn't. Stop it. <laughs> He's like, I was in the CIA. It's like, bro, you could barely shoot a gun. Everyone knows your shit, Ray. They dishonorably discharged you for being shit. This would all have been taking place during the two-year period after the OSS was officially disbanded, but before the CIA was officially formed, so I can't imagine there's much of a paper trail for anything that happened during that period. Just keep in mind that the only source we have for this is the word of Ray's brother. Yeah, who was told it by Ray. Since we're on the topic, we may as well get some further unverifiable details of Ray's life from this time period out of the way. After being discharged from the military, he moved to California, where he began his life of petty crime, that part's true. More contentious is his reputation in the media as a lifelong racist and supporter of George Wallace, a presidential hopeful famous for stating in his 1963 inaugural address as Alabama governor, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Again, everyone. 1963. But also, how that turned out for you, George. Ah. Fortunately for Wallace, forever only meant about seven years. That's how it turned out. Fuck you. Because in 1970, he became a born-again Christian and apologized for all of his previously racist views. Shit, I take it back. Good for you. Wow, that's great. I, 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 I'm all into people changing. Like, that's fantastic. But where did Ray stand on these issues? Well, according to his family and friends, he couldn't be racist because some of his best friends were black. And I'm not a racist. I have I have black friends. I just hate all other black people. Come on, it's not. Oh, oh, oh my God. While living in Los Angeles, Ray had predominantly lived in a black apartment building, went to black dance clubs, and had a black girlfriend. And even if it's all about, well, I mean, that does make him sound not racist, doesn't it? <laughs> And I, I I make fun of the like, oh, because it's like a meme. Like, oh, I'm not racist. I've got black friends. It's a meme. But the reality is, this dude, if, if this is true, he, I, I would say that that is a sign of probably not being racist or being less racist. If you like hanging out with black people, you probably don't hate them. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? It would sound more racist if you're like, no, I never live with black people. I definitely don't have any black friends and I would never go to a black dance club. See, that sounds more racist. And oh my God, is this section forever going to haunt me on Twitter when people cut these clips out? Why? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Even if all of that's true, I'm not necessarily sure that it means he wasn't a racist, though it does make it a much harder sell fully agree. We do need to remember that the main source for this was his brother John, who would have had an ulterior motive in trying to paint Ray in a different light. John owned the Grapevine Tavern, which was known to be a common meeting place for George Wallace's supporters, since it is believed that Ray's two primary motivations for assassinating King were racism and the desire to collect a large bounty from the KKK and other racist organizations for King's murder, a bounty that allegedly may have come to his attention through his brother's bar and it would all be in John's best interest to separate Ray from this narrative. So, let's get back to the parts of Ray's story that can be ver verified before we dive headfirst into conspiratorial waters. After his brief stint in the military, where he may or may not have been drugged out of his mind, he became the newest member of America's revolving door prison system. He first entered the prison system after being convicted of burglary in California. Following that, he served another two years in prison for robbing a taxi driver at gunpoint in Illinois for the kingly sum of $11 and change. Once he was released, he was convicted of mail fraud in Missouri. Ray wasn't even smart enough to commit some sort of actual mail fraud scam. He just strolled into a post office to steal some money orders. Apparently, this is technically classified as mail fraud. That just sounds like theft. <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, but the post office was involved, so it's a federal crime and you're gonna hang for this. You know, one of those weird crimes that is surprisingly bad. 
After another four years in four years in prison, he stole some things from a post office. <laughs> Dude, the you're accidentally committing really bad crimes. After another four years in prison, he was again convicted of armed robbery. Now that is a bad crime. Uh, and and I mean these are all bad crimes. I'm not trying to say that they're not bad crimes. But like stealing some shit from a post office <laughs> and like armed robbery feels like a different game, doesn't it? Uh, this time for stealing roughly $120 from a Kroger grocery store in Missouri. In honor of his many repeat offenses and with very little downtime between his releases from prison and his next crimes, Ray was finally sentenced to 20 years. It was in 1960 when he began serving this sentence, but by 1967 it'd make his daring escape. Escaping a prison is not easy, and practice makes perfect, so of course he had made other attempts before finally being successful. The first attempt saw Ray build his own makeshift ladder to climb over the prison wall. It was brilliant in its simplicity and ended up with him falling off the wall and knocking himself unconscious. Brilliant. Master criminal at work is, Oh no, I don't have a ladder for the other side! Ray! The second attempt resulted in Ray being found by guards hiding in a ventilation shaft. The third time's the charm, and it was on the third attempt that Ray was finally able to escape by hiding inside a box on a bread delivery truck. There's no real reason that this should have worked, as the guards and delivery crews should have been accustomed to making sure there weren't any convicts hiding in the truck, but it did work. And now we get back to the less reliable. Information. While I could find lots of sources that mention these alleged facts, all of them list the book written by Ray's brother John as their source, so well take it as you will. After each unsuccessful escape attempt, Ray was administered Librium by a doctor who just happened to be a high-ranking military psychiatrist. Librium is a relatively weak benzo that can be used in medical hypnosis, and it is allegedly used to strengthen the effects of MK Ultra star mind control stuff. The escape plan allegedly hadn't originated with Ray either, but rather with his cellmate, Ronnie Westberg. According to the story, Westberg knew that the plan would, wor would work, but wasn't able to do it himself because he was under extremely heavy surveillance for his repeated escape attempts. While Ray had tried to escape twice in six years, he was otherwise a model prisoner. <laughs> he was a model prisoner, except he tries to escape the prison every three years or so. He doesn't sound like a model prisoner at all. But his escape attempts were so comedically bad that he didn't need to be watched as carefully as some other inmates. Following the escape, Westberg was found hanging dead in his cell. His arms and legs were all broken, and the death was ruled a suicide. <laughs> Why, he break his arms and legs before he hang himself? <laughs> Jesus, it's like what I'm doing. Shot himself in the head. Twice. That would be really suspicious if I could find any evidence other than John's book that such an event ever transpired. It was shortly after Ray escaped prison and to travel to Montreal, Canada, that he claimed to have met Raoul. He described Raoul only as a blonde Cuban, and that a man he began working for, running guns and possibly drugs. It was Raoul who he claimed had set him up with the three fake identities he used, Eric Ault, Harvey Lomar, and John Willett. And here's where things start to get really interesting. Some of the previous allegations that came from John are more than a little bit out there, but Ray's own account involving Raoul is a bit more credible. First, there are the fake identities he used. To put it nicely, Ray seems like he was a bit of a dum-dum. He could probably be described as a person who had more money than sense, and as a recently escaped convict on the run in a foreign country, he did not have any money. Wait, I thought he had more money than sense. 
So he's got nothing. I, I feel like Evan doesn't give this dude enough credit. Like, yeah, he's clearly a piece of shit. But he did manage to escape the country, which I don't think is something most, like, people who commit assassinations manage to achieve. They end up captured very quickly. And yet, despite this, Ray was able to come up with genuine credentials for three aliases. Not only that, but the three fake names he used were real Canadian citizens who happened to look extremely similar to him. The name he used most frequently was Eric Starbo Galt, most likely the result of him misreading the signature of the actual man Eric St. Vincent Galt, who signed his name as Eric STV Galt. Physically, the two match one another almost perfectly, including scars there on the forehead and right palm. What are the fucking odds? According to Ray, Rao gave him $12,000 and the fake credentials in exchange for doing, doing deliveries for him. He then traveled around the country, working under the employer Raul, who he believed to be selling guns to anti-Castro-Cuban militants. One day, Raul gave Ray $2,000 and told him to get to Birmingham, Alabama to get a car. This is where he bought the white Mustang. So this dude's on the run from prison for a long time. And he's like in America, he's in Canada, he's crossing borders. I thought people generally escaped from prison and they were back in prison within like three days. Like the vast, I thought it was all of them. But I guess this guy actually escaped from prison and set himself up with a new life, which is pretty crazy. On March the 30th, four days before the assassination of King, Raoul informed him that he was making a large deal with the Cubans and would be supplying them with 200 guns. He again sent Ray to Birmingham, this time to buy a Remington 760-3006 with a telescopic sight that could be used as a demonstration of the weapons that the Cubans would be buying. Ray went to the Air and Marine Supply Company in Birmingham and returned with 760-243 Winchester. He had purchased the wrong caliber gun. Classic Ray, small brain. The next day, Ray called the store before returning there to exchange it for a 3006. According to the Air and Marine Supply Company employees, it was clear over the course of his two visits that Ray knew exactly two things about guns, Jack, and shit. He didn't know what the right scope for the gun was, and despite being given explicit instructions, he couldn't even pick out the correct gun. This was a guy who served in the military, but, remember, got discharged for being incompetent. When he went to make the exchange, the employees told him that the 243 was powerful enough to take down any deer he'd find in Alabama. His response was that he intended to take the rifle hunting in Wisconsin. Uh, apparently, deer are a bit sturdier up north. On the day of the assassination, Ray met Raoul at Jim's Grill, the restaurant below the rooming house and across from the Lorraine Motel. He was instructed to rent room 5B, but it doesn't sound like he actually spent any time in the room, according to his account. This isn't necessarily without evidence. Though Ray's fingerprints were found on the discarded gun and beer cans, uh, they were not present in the hotel room or the bathroom. Sure, he could have wiped everything down or worn gloves the whole time, but there was little, very little time between the shot being fired and him driving away, so wiping the room for prints afterwards becomes less likely. But according to him, he never fired the gun anyway. He bought it and gave it to Raoul, which is why his fingerprints were on it. He was then instructed to wait in the Mustang as a getaway driver in case things went south while Raoul met with the militants at Jim's Grill. According to Ray, at 6.01pm, he was waiting in the car when he heard a gunshot. Raoul then ran to the car and they sped off. At the time, he believed that something had gone down with the arms deal and they were just trying to escape. When the car had nearly exited Memphis, Raoul waited until they slowed down a bit and then jumped out of the moving vehicle never to see Ray again. It wasn't until after he had been driving for a few more hours that he claimed to have first learned that King had been shot from a report on the car radio. That report also mentioned the suspect was a white male driving a white Mustang, uh-oh, which is why he claimed to have dumped the car and taken a bus to Detroit. From there, the story of his months on the lamb in Canada and Europe is pretty much the same. But who are we to believe? 
the official story of Ray's personal account of being accidentally involved. Well, let's first look at the evidence involving Ray, and then we'll get to the evidence of a potential FBI conspiracy. Right now, I'm like, I just believe the official narrative, because this sounds like a narrative that Ray made up with some mysterious Raul character to have someone to blame other than himself for, for the shooting, and it seems like he definitely did the shooting. Right? That's the obvious thing to go for. The shaky evidence against Ray. I've already touched upon some incongruities in the official story. Ray was reported to have worked alone in the assassination, but even on the surface, it's hard to believe that he didn't have help. He dropped out of high school, essentially failed out of the army, and once he came back from West Germany, he was a petty criminal who spent more time in jail than out. And yet we're supposed to believe that he was able to acquire a large sum of money and authentic passports bearing the names of real Canadian citizens who genuinely almost looked exactly like him. This was the same guy who went to jail for holding up a cab driver at gunpoint over $11. Yeah, this whole time I've been like, Kevin, you don't give this guy enough credit. And now I see why Kevin doesn't give this guy enough credit, because Kevin doesn't think that he's the one pulling all of this off. And now I'm kind of like, yeah, Kevin's a big brain. <laughs> why did I draw that conclusion? Uh, oh God, I don't know. It's really kind of obvious now, isn't it? But it does feel very conspiratorial. Or maybe I'm just naive. Oh god, I don't know. Either way, it's not good. Would I rather be stupid or naive? Probably naive, I guess. I'll go with naive. Then, of course, there's the rifle. He demonstrated a clear lack of understanding of firearms when he went in to purchase the gun, and he had demonstrated a clear lack of ability with guns while in the military. This also wasn't like Lee Harvey Oswald, a man who earned the designation of sharpshooter from the Marines and had a clear line of sight from the depository window to JFK, regardless of whether or not he was the only shooter. Ray had barely passed his marksmanship test, and his line of sight was anything but clear. The window in the bathroom of the rooming house did in fact face the Lorraine Motel, but well, fucked if you could see anything. There was a sycamore tree growing right in front of the window, with large branches covering and practically entering the window. In order to take the shot to hit King at the correct angle, Ray would have needed to be standing on top of the bathtub, holding his body in an incredibly awkward position and using his superhuman X-ray vision to see through the tree in order to aim at his at least somewhat moving target. This is the guy who was basically incompetent at guns in the military. It's like, come on. If it's as bad as that, no way. Speaking of the bathroom, I did mention it earlier, but this was a communal bathroom. It may have been publicized in the news where King was going to be staying, but there was no way a sniper was hitting somebody inside the hotel room from this bathroom. They would have had to have been outside. How long exactly Ray would have to be standing on the bathtub and aiming his rifle at the balcony in the hopes that King might walk outside? And what are the odds that he could wait there for that long with nobody coming in to use the bathroom? I can only imagine how awkward an encounter would be if someone knocked on the door, only for Ray to give a polite, on a me, ma'am, as he walked out of the bathroom carrying a rifle. Just imagine you just walk into the bathroom, there's a dude just standing there with a fuck off massive gun mounted on a, like, and he's just mounted himself on a bathtub. He'd be like, oh, I can see it's occupied. Excuse me, carry on. Don't mind me, Ray. I'm just going to take a dump over here. You stay there with your gun. Please don't shoot me. That clearly didn't happen, but if the sound of a gunshot came from the bathroom of the rooming house, surely another guest must have poked their head out to see what was going on, right? I mean, if it was gunfire coming from inside the building, then maybe not. But there was one witness that claimed to see Ray fleeing from the bathroom after the shooting, a man named Charles Stevens. Depending on who you ask, he was better known either as Bourbon Charlie or Bay Rum Charlie, but either way, Charlie had over 150 arrests, mostly related to his rampant alcoholism. So not exactly a reliable witness right there. 
This was the FBI's star witness and the only person to claim to see Ray fleeing the building. Charlie's wife, his landlord, and another witness all stated that Charlie was too drunk at that point to have seen anything. And the only other witness that saw a person leaving the building that day said it was not Ray. During a pretty fantastic interview televised on CBS News, a reporter held a picture of Ray up to Charles, and Charles did not recognize him at all. Oh, Bay Rum Charlie, come on! When the reporter asked if it looked like the man he had seen, his reply was, No, sir, it certainly doesn't. I cannot possibly stress enough that this was the FBI's star witness against Ray. <laughs> He's a drunk guy who said, Nah, it doesn't look like him at all. <laughs> what did you forget your lines, Charlie? Come on, the FBI gave you the lines, allegedly. Next, there's the bullet that killed King. Initial testing showed that it was consistent with a bullet fired from a Remington 760. Guns use rifling to spin the bullet through the barrel, and the spin makes its flight path more consistent. All guns of the same model should have similar rifling, but not necessarily identical. But that is, of course, barring some sort of defects like was present on the gun with Ray's fingerprints. Early ballistics tests came back as inconclusive. This isn't proof of anything, one way or the other. However, later tests using updated techniques, uh, were, while still not 100% conclusive, began telling a different story. The judge presiding over Ray's final appeal was Judge Joe Brown. For fans of daytime television, yes, it's that Joe Brown. <laughs> no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Brown was presented with updated ballistic tests that showed in 12 of 18 trials using the alleged murder weapon, the resulting bullets did not match those of the fatal bullet. But then I would say that the other four, the other six did. And that's pretty damning, isn't it? That doesn't seem inconclusive at all. It's like, yeah, 12 didn't, but six did. But would there be another gun in the world that would deliver the six that did? I don't know how ballistics works. But that does seem unlikely, doesn't it? The rate of rifling on the bullet being pulled from King was one turn every 11 and a half inches, but the rate of rifling on the test bullets was only one turn every 10 inches. There was also marks on the test bullets from a manufacturing defect in Ray's gun that were not present in the fatal bullet. Now that seems like a bigger deal. That's fairly huge, and if two-thirds of the test bullets did not match, that would mean that it was more likely that the rifle with Ray's fingerprints on was not the one that killed King. More likely than not, but not guaranteed. Well, more likely than not is what we're looking for here. We just need... I say this like I'm defending Ray. Um, all they needed, all they should surely need to get Ray off, because I'm really feeling conspiracy vibes right now, is reasonable doubt. And surely that's reasonable doubt. Brown requested additional ballistics, at which point he was removed from the trial for his alleged bias. You know, bias in wanting the most accurate possible evidence with which to make a decision. But even if it's twice as likely that this rifle wasn't the murder weapon, people saw Ray drop it on the ground before fleeing the scene. That's got to be damning evidence, right? I mean, it is evidence. But if the forensic evidence is saying something else, then that is far more compelling, isn't it? If that's what people saw, then yes, it would be. But allegedly, it's not. In the 1999 trial that we'll be getting to later, oh my god, yeah, the trial that says that this isn't how it went down. The official narrative, right? I forgot about that. This is a very long video. So long as this all maintains Simon's interest. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I'll just be reading a script and I'll abandon it and be like, nah, not interesting enough. <laughs> Sorry. Very rarely happens. Very, very rarely. Kevin's kind of joking, I think. 
Raisin, the original lawyer that he fired, Arthur Haynes, told a different story. By this point, he was Judge Arthur Haynes, and he was telling his story in the form of testimony sworn under oath. Haynes stated that he had interviewed Gary Canip early on in the investigation of the scene before anyone had the opportunity to tamper with the witness. Guy Canip was predictably the owner of Canip's amusement company, the store in front of which Ray is said to have dropped the bundle of evidence. According to Haynes, Guy said that the bundle containing the alleged murder weapon was dropped in front of his store two to five minutes before the shot was fired and the man who dropped it off was a dark-skinned white male with a chunky build a description that did not fit ray what this is a judge saying this this is a judge relaying witness testimony that he took before someone was allegedly tampered with this shit is crazy this is like the jfk assassination where i'm like there's something going on here there's definitely something going on here other witnesses that were in the store at the time agreed that Ray was not the person they had seen drop off the bundle. Another issue with the evidence against Ray is that no one seems to have actually heard the shot come from the bathroom window. However, there are a whole lot of witnesses who claim to have heard the shot come from bushes outside of the building directly across the street from the R Lorraine Motel, bushes from which someone would have a much better vantage point. There were numerous reports of the gunshot coming from the bushes, followed by a plume of smoke coming up from the bushes. People even saw a man with a white shirt leap out of the bushes afterwards and run around the building all of these people were told by police that they were mistaken <laughs> police you're not supposed what are you doing your job is to gather witnesses gather testimony and instead you're like no 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 you didn't see that what the fuck are you cia jesus if there was someone in the bushes that took the shot who could it have been was it this enigmatic Raoul, a magical being like the Great Gazoo or Snuffleupagus that only one character can even see? Well, it turns out there's some evidence that Raoul may in fact have existed. It's somewhat questionable evidence, but it's there. At one point during his prison break, Ray was driving from Los Angeles to New Orleans to meet Raoul. Along the ride was a songwriter named Charles Steen. Okay. During their journey, Ray stopped to call Raoul from a payphone. For reasons unknown, Steen decided to write down the number that he called. Steen brought this information up to an investigative reporter in the 1970s, and the reporter did the only logical thing. They called the number. The phone reached Louisiana State Police Barracks in New Orleans area, barracks that happened to be well known as a staging ground for CIA-sponsored guerrilla operations against Fidel Castro. And the man who answered the phone was one Raoul Esquivel. That doesn't seem like very shaky evidence. I mean, the the songwriter in the car writing down the number, that seems like, why did he do that? Who is this guy? What's going on? But if that is legitimately the number that he calls, and it reaches this Raoul dude at this place, that doesn't seem... I guess the shakiness is like, why would the songwriter have this number and then come forward so much later? That seems weird. This could of course be a coincidence. If federal intelligence agencies were involved, it seems a bit silly to think that an operative would actually give their real name to be the intended fall guy. That's just sloppy. Now what else is probably coincidence? I mentioned that there was a witness besides Drinky the drunk guy who saw someone leave the rooming house bathroom after the shot was fired. When the witness was shown pictures of different individuals, the person she identified as having seen happened to be a Louisiana state trooper. The final issue with this whole thing is the timing. I'm not sure of the reliability of the sources for this one, but I'll just throw it out there anyway. As I said, it would have been weird if Ray just happened to go to the bathroom at the precise moment that King decided to go out to the balcony to talk to Jesse Jackson, his driver, and others. He would have probably waited in the bathroom for a while in the hopes that King came out, but what if it's an even less believable time window than that? Allegedly, King had got out onto the balcony before 6pm for a cigarette and was out there for 15 minutes talking to people and waving. 
It's true that he was a regular smoker, but you'd be hard-pressed to find a picture of him smoking because he tried to hide this from the public and especially from his children so they wouldn't take up the habit. That fact makes me less convinced of the veracity of the claim that he would be smoking in public while waving at people, but uh, we'll at least consider the idea for a moment. If someone was stalking King, monitoring his balcony in the hopes that he would emerge, wouldn't it make more sense for him to be shot during the 15-minute window he was on the balcony rather than letting him go back into the room and waiting for him to emerge to again for a minute? And isn't it unlikely that Ray would have entered the bathroom after King had been out for a smoke, but before he had left the room for the night? Unless, of course, the shooter wasn't yet in position because the hit was planned for precisely 6 p.m. But I mean, how could anyone know exactly when King was planning to leave his room? In order to know that, you'd probably have to be stalking him intently, wiretapping his phones, bugging his hotel rooms, listening in from adjoining rooms. You know, all the sort of shady shit that the FBI was absolutely doing. No, allegedly required there, I think. But let's just say, just in case, allegedly, <laughs> they were allegedly doing. I think that was like, that's part of history though, right? That the FBI were like spying on him and stuff, allegedly. The FBI... And Martin Luther King Jr. J. Edgar Hoover, bit of a dick, and most historians agree he was a massive racist as well. Holy shit, really? Wasn't that that? Is that? Uh, I haven't seen it. I can't believe I haven't seen it because I'm a big fan of uh, DiCaprio. But doesn't he play Hoover in a movie called? I want to say it's called Hoover or J. Edgar. J. Edgar. It's called J. Edgar or Edgar or something like this. I'd like to see that. Hoover essentially created the FBI and he ran the organization for 48 years the way that he saw fit. Unfortunately. The way he saw fit was by no means appropriate. Although he is probably best known for his intense anti-communist stance, a stance that wasn't particularly controversial at the time. Is, anti is an anti-communist stance, stance controversial today? Especially in America? If someone was anti-communist, I'd be like, oh, okay, you don't like communists. I'm not a big fan of communism myself. But like, is it controversial? I don't think so. People are gonna be like, Simon, I can't believe you said you didn't like communism. What the fuck? I, well, I don't look, I don't not like communism. I think like in a utopia, communism might be well more like socialism, right? But the problem is it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. We've tried it. Many places have tried it. It doesn't work out very well. Hoover greatly opposed anything he saw as leftist or subversive, and this included the civil rights movement. Thanks to a slew of FOIA requests in the 1970s, we know some of the lengths that the FBI went to in order to monitor and harass King for the better part of a decade. Over 70,000 pages of FBI secret files on King were released, and but that's not even close to the whole story. The majority of the documents and recordings were sealed away by federal court order until 2027. According to the final report from the Senate Select Committee to Study Governmental Operations with Respect to Intelligence Agencies, aka the Church Committee, published in 1976, the FBI's extensive attempts to discredit King and they were one of the most abusive of all FBI programs. The unofficial harassment of King by the FBI may have begun in the 1950s in the form of newspaper articles and the like, but it was in 1962 that a more official vendetta against him began. One of King's closest advisors, New York lawyer Stanley Levison, was pegged as communist by FBI informants. While it's true that Levison had been one of the top financiers of America's Communist Party previously, it does not appear that he was still active with the party at the time. But as far as Hoover was concerned, once communist, always a communist. And this also meant that King may have been a communist by association, something that they could use to discredit him. On June the 22nd, 1963, King got to meet with President Kennedy at the White House to discuss civil rights. It was a public perception about Kennedy and King, one that is credited with helping Kennedy win the presidency. In October 1960, shortly before the election, 
JFK made a phone call to King's wife, Coretta. It was a short call, maybe only a minute long, in which he expressed his condolences to her over the fact that her husband was sitting in a jail cell at the time. It was a phone call that everyone in his campaign told him not to make because it would cost him the election. But in addition to the phone call, both JFK and Bobby Kennedy had been working hard behind the scenes to get Kennedy released. After 30 hours in jail, King was let go on bail. When speaking to the press, he credited the work of Kennedy in his release. Though he did not officially endorse Kennedy, King spoke very highly of him and said that he held Senator Kennedy in very high esteem. Before this, Kennedy hadn't been particularly popular with the black community, even though he was supposed to be far more progressive than his opponent, Richard Nixon. He still lost the support of many civil rights activists for being seen as catering to racist white Southerners in an effort to win votes. With King's statements after his release from prison, he received a huge wave of support with black voters. And from then on, he and King were seen as friends and allies. But this wasn't actually the case. They may have had similar goals in terms of civil rights, but they weren't actually friends and had a rather complex association. In a recording of Kennedy from a month before their meeting, he spoke about the schedule for that day. He wanted to push the meeting with King further back in the day to surround it with meetings involving Southern governors. He said, The trouble with King is everybody thinks he's our boy. Later adding, King is so hot these days, it's like Marx coming to the White House. End quote. This is important because of the Kennedy's complicity in what eventually followed. During the meeting, Kennedy led King out of the Oval Office and into the Rose Garden. King would later joke that Kennedy took him out of the office for fear that it was bugged. Once in the garden, King was informed that Levison was a communist and that he had to drop him. Kennedy also warned that King was under surveillance as well and that he couldn't allow there to be any scandal that would damage his administration's chances of getting a civil rights bill through Congress. Unfortunately, King felt that this covert request from the president was just a polite suggestion and there was no harm in ignoring it. The FBI had gotten approval to wiretap Levison, and once it was discovered that he and King were still in contact, Hoover went to Attorney General Bobby Kennedy to get approval for wiretaps for King's home and office. Bobby approved the wiretap with the caveat that he wanted a full report in 30 days, after which he would determine whether or not there was any reason to continue the surveillance. Of course, that never happened. The FBI never submitted a report, but, but Bobby never brought up the subject again either. Because he hadn't explicitly rescinded the authorization for wiretapping, the FBI was able to use the original authorization to conduct even more wiretapping over the following years. Wow, that shit should have an expiration date, shouldn't it? It's like, yeah, you could do it for 30 days, and then you've got to come back to me for more. Not like, you could do it forever unless I say no. Because you're a busy dude, Bobby Kennedy's probably real busy, and he's gonna forget. The Kennedys were privy to some of the FBI's monitoring of King, but it is unclear exactly how much they knew. Hoover had been keen on discrediting King so that he could derail the civil rights movement, and he felt nothing would be more effective than finding proof that King had communist ties. Although the wiretaps never resulted in evidence of communist rhetoric, what the FBI uncovered was far more salacious. Rather than calling Levison to discuss his Marxist ideals, King was calling him to talk about his extramarital affairs. As far as Hoover was concerned, he just hit the fucking jackpot. Proving King was a commie would have been great, but the country was filled with communist sympathizers who might not have been dissuaded by such a revelation. But a Baptist reverend who couldn't keep it in his pants? Now that was a scandal the entire nation could get behind. The extent of the surveillance against King ramped up dramatically following this revelation, and there seemed to be no limit to the lengths that the FBI would go to in order to find proof of his infidelity. At least one FBI operative was planted within the Southern Christian Leadership Council, though King wasn't an idiot and was reportedly well aware that this person was on Hoover's payroll. But that was only the beginning. 
Thanks to all the wiretaps, the FBI knew exactly where King was traveling at all times and what hotels he would be staying at. It became standard procedure for them to arrive at hotels beforehand and make management let them into the room where King would be staying so they could plant bugs. They would also book the room next door so that they could listen through the walls. Jesus Christ, FBI. It feels like incredible overreach. The documents compiled by the FBI are startling, both in their content and their volume. Didn't say it was like 70,000 pages or something insane? They were monitoring King's every word, every movement, and every pelvic thrust. Oh, God. According to monitoring from the FBI, King had affairs between, with between 40 and 45 different women, hosted orgies, and would engage in, quote, unnatural sex acts. Of course, this was the 1960s, so God only knows what that meant. Up until 1962, sodomy was a felony in every single state, and the law wasn't even really targeting homosexuals. It should have just gone without saying that being gay was a crime back then. The anti-sodomy laws prohibited any sexual act that wasn't performed with the intent of procreation. While the enforcement of such laws varied greatly, the term unnatural sex acts could easily have just referred to stuff like oral sex. In fact, there's a good chance that that's exactly what it meant, at least in part. In 1964, the FBI directed Deputy Director William Sullivan wrote a memo paraphrasing one of the recordings of King. In the memo, he wrote that when King was trying to coerce a woman to let him perform unnatural acts on her, he declared to the room that he had started the International Association for the Advancement of Pussy Eaters. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's so crazy that all of this is public. This is like Martin Luther King, and it feels like we're reading his fucking diary. Jesus. What are you doing, FBI? This is none of your business. While that may be the single greatest phrase I've ever seen in an official government document, page 19 of file number 62HQ116395, for anyone who wants to see it for themselves, the scene, as it's described, actually comes off as a bit rapey on the part of King. In fact, this same document alleges a scene in which a minister raped a woman while King just looked on and laughed. Jesus. There are two important things to note here. The first is that these documents are the FBI's accounting of what happened. Recordings exist, but those are all locked away until 2027, so we can't yet verify how honest they were being. The second important thing is that the FBI was... <laughs> it's going to be a mighty coincidence if those uh, recordings disappear by 2027, isn't it? What do you reckon the odds are of us actually getting to hear those are? I'm going to say low. It's like when the government was like, yeah, yeah, we got to release them, we're going to release them. It's like, oh no, well, we decided to redact everything. If the account is accurate, that means that the FBI also just sat there doing nothing while they listened to a woman being raped. If this is what the Bureau gets up to, it kind of makes me glad that they never accepted my application. Oh, there you go, Kevin. Didn't know you applied to the FBI. With proof and recordings of King's infidelity, uh, there was only one thing left for Hoover to do. Release the information to the public to destroy both King's credibility and the civil rights movement in one fell swoop. He felt this would be a foolproof plan, and yet it didn't work. The funny thing about news media back in the 1960s is that it wasn't nearly as sensationalist as it is today. It's not entirely clear whether Hoover was trying to shop the recordings around to various news outlets or if he just mailed copies of the tapes to them, but either way, the end result was the same. Nobody gave a shit. That's not to say that the public wouldn't have cared, because they absolutely would have, but no news outlet was interested in releasing the information. Given the world we live in today, this is almost impossible to imagine. But back then, the press didn't think that the private lives of public figures was anybody's damn business. Oh my god, I miss the past sometimes. I know the past was the worst. But goddamn, wouldn't that be a nicer world? They had declined to publish proof of JFK's affairs, and they weren't going to publish proof of King's affairs either. So if Hoover couldn't take care of his problem in the court of public opinion, it was going to have to try a more personal approach. The FBI King Suicide Letter 
If the FBI couldn't get the press to play the tapes of King's affairs, then it was time to be more direct. They mailed some of the tapes along with an anonymous letter to King's house. Coretta received the package, though she claimed to not really make anything out in the tapes, referring to the audio as a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. When King returned home and read the letter, he immediately and correctly assumed that it was sent by the FBI. The existence of the letter, often referred to as the FBI King suicide letter, was known. But it had only existed in a heavily redacted and unreadable form. It had been discovered in 1971 when an activist group broke into the FBI office and stole about a thousand classified documents, including the suicide letter. Oh my god. <laughs> that sounds dangerous. It wasn't until a 1975 investigation during the church committee hearings that an unredacted copy of the letter was found alongside other papers that had been in the desk of FBI Deputy Director William Sullivan, the presumed author. I wouldn't think this needed to be said, but do not keep carbon copy records of your crimes in your work files. Did he know? Is this a, I mean, it seems insane to say, but is this a crime? Is the FBI doing crimes, or is this like super shady shit? Like, they had the authorization from what's-his-face, uh, Kennedy, to, uh, to do the wiretap. So can they send him this letter, which encourages him to, like, you know, um, yeah. So, yeah, that's gotta be a crime, right? <laughs> I, I don't know why I'm questioning. That's definitely a crime. The letter was received on the 21st of November 1964, just two days after Hoover had publicly stated to an assemblage of reporters that King was the most notorious liar in the country. The suicide letter claimed to be written by a fellow African-American and former supporter of King's, but it wasn't fooling anyone. The author called himself a fraud multiple times, referred to him as an evil, abnormal beast, and kept repeating the phrase, You are done. The letter concluded, King. There is only one thing left for you to do. You know what it is. You have just 34 days in which to do it. This exact number has been selected for a specific reason. It has definite practical significance. You are done. There is but one way out for you. You better take it before your filthy, abnormal, fraudulent self is bared to the nation. There are only a couple of possibilities for what the author was specifying that King should do. One proposal was that he should decline to accept the Nobel Peace Prize that he had won that year, but the ceremony was only 19 days away, and I suspect the FBI could ensure a package would be delivered in less than 15 days. The other alternative was that he was being asked to simply step down from his role as civil rights leader and president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. The 34-day deadline, which would have been Christmas, doesn't make any real sense in this scenario, but it's perfectly likely that it wasn't meant to mean anything and it was just chosen arbitrarily to give a sense of urgency to the matter. Of course, those two readings of the letter are the minority opinion. To the vast majority of people, the words, there is one way out for you, you better take it, can mean nothing but a call for King to commit suicide, especially given the harsh tone of the letter. But for skeptics, there's more evidence that this was intended to coerce him into suicide. It was not known to the public, but King had pretty severe bouts of depression. He hid this as much as he could because of how awful the stigma surrounding mental health was at the time, but those in his private life knew. And since the FBI was listening to everything he said, that meant they knew as well. There is evidence that they frequently timed their harassment to exploit his depression. The FBI would likely have been aware of the little-known fact that by the age of 13, King had already tried to commit suicide twice. In the more dramatic of the two events, he snuck out to a parade after promising his grandmother that he'd stay home with her. When he returned home from the parade, he found that she had died of a heart attack while he was gone, and he was so overcome by guilt that he jumped out of a second-story window. The FBI's attempted exploitation of his depression was absolutely deplorable, and there's a reason that the church committee said that it was one of the most abusive FBI programs of all time. Since this letter was received in 1964, and King wasn't assassinated until 1968, he probably already figured out that the threat didn't work. Those 34 days passed, and nothing happened. 
Nothing special, anyway. It was just a continuation of your run-of-the-mill abuse of power by Hoover that continued all the way until April the 4th, 1968. Suspicious Events on the Day of the Assassination So, we already know that Hoover and the FBI had it out for King in a big way. That's an established fact supported by tens of thousands of government documents. And sure, they may have tried to gently extort him into suicide, but does that mean they'd actually go so far as to kill him? When it was just about civil rights, maybe not. For most of his life, King was just campaigning for African Americans to actually enjoy the rights that Congress had promised them nearly a century earlier. That shouldn't really have been seen as a big ask. But after the signing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, his attention had shifted. He was still involved in civil rights activism, but he was expanding beyond that. King was very vocal in his opposition to capitalism and the Vietnam War. The way he saw it is evidenced in the quote Simon read like 75 minutes ago. <laughs> Kevin, very aware of the length of this script. America was fundamentally broken. It needed to be burned down, figuratively, and rebuilt from the ground up so that it could be a more equitable society that respected the rights of all people and, and work together to vanquish poverty from within the nation. God, oh, what a monster. God, what a monster. No wonder the government wanted him dead. <laughs> It's so absurd. It's so insane. When King was returning to Memphis on April the 3rd, he was a bit wary given the riots that had taken place there just a week prior during his last visit. As an extra security precaution, he and his team decided to book room 202 at the Lorraine Motel rather than the normal King Abernathy suite. Room 202 was more secluded and the door and balcony didn't open to the main street. However, before he arrived, the motel received a call from a person claiming to be part of King's entourage. That person requested that they move, be moved back to room 306. If that's not from his entourage, that is mega suspicious. By the time King arrived at the motel and learned of the change, a change that nobody on his team had requested, Every other room was booked, so they stuck with 306. Oh my lord. The only people who would know outside of his entourage that he didn't want to stay in that room because it was too open would be the people spying on him, which was the FBI. So they would phone and get them to change the room, which is insane. The city of Memphis wasn't thrilled about King returning after his last visit resulted in a riot and he was put under surveillance by the Memphis Police Department. It's probably worth noting that the MPD had five paid informants who were working with the FBI. When he arrived at the airport, King was met by four police officers who had been assigned to protect him. He hadn't requested police protection and wouldn't tell them where he was staying, but they followed him to the motel anyway. In addition, there were two black plainclothes officers that began tailing him from the moment he arrived at the airport. One of these officers was Detective Edward Reddit. The police detail would stay as close to King as possible for his protection, while the undercover officers kept an eye on him from the fire station across the street. A fire station that the FBI happened to mention had an excellent vantage point of the Lorraine Motel. Well, I don't think it's a coincidence that they mention it's got an excellent vantage point. They're there to look at him. That They're, they're openly admitting to that, so saying it's got a good vantage point doesn't have any secret meaning. Other than the room change, so far this isn't suspicious. No, but the room change is so suspicious. Oh my god. A notable and contentious public figure was back in town, and the MPD had dedicated half a dozen men to ensuring his round-the-clock protection. I get why King and his team would have been thrilled about the police detail, but personally I'll be happy knowing that my safety was being taken seriously. It wasn't until the next day that things started to get really strange. There were only two black firemen who worked at the station across the street from the motel, both of whom were called and given the day off on April the 4th. Shortly after noon that day, Detective Reddit received a threatening phone call. He and the other undercover officer were sent back to the station, and upon arriving, Reddit was informed that threats had been made against him and his family. They would have to stay at the hotel under a fake name until it all blew over. Reddit would never hear another word about the alleged threats. 
At 5.05 p.m., less than an hour before the assassination, the four policemen guarding King were called back to the station. This hadn't been scheduled, and they had no idea why they were called back. When the chief of police was asked why, they were asked to return to the station. He claimed that he didn't remember it happening. In fact, the chief of police claims that he didn't even remember there being any officers assigned to King's protection. That's a pretty bold stance to take, since there's testimony on the matter from all of the officers involved, but, well, you do you, chief. Sounds like that dude just wants to stay out of this. Which, um, I don't know if I can't blame him, it sounds it's, it's super messy and scary. One interesting thing that came from their testimony is that Reddit said that it was his idea to use the fire station, and his partner hadn't been given a specific location from which to surveil King. I'm not saying that the alleged threats against his life and family wouldn't have happened if it chosen a different location, I'm just saying. So over the course of that afternoon, King went from having six police officers on site and dedicated to his protection down to zero thanks to mysterious orders from the police department in which the FBI had multiple people on its payroll. Yeah, nothing to see here. By the way, do you remember when I mentioned that most of the witnesses not only heard the shot come from outside in the bushes, but a man in a white shirt ran out of the bushes around the building? You're not supposed to, but all I can do is tell you that every one of those witnesses must have been wrong. Do you also remember when I said that there was a tree blocking the window from the rooming house and the shot would have been nigh impossible, especially for the rather inept Ray? Well, you definitely aren't supposed to remember that, and the city of Memphis was going to make sure you didn't remember it. This was the example, the, the one about the guy in the bushes or whatever, where the police were like, nah, you didn't see that. Which is like not what you're supposed to do as police officers. Right? <sighs> Idiots. On April the 5th, there was no tree. One officer testified that he heard several conversations at the police department, with others saying that the shot couldn't have come from that window because of a sycamore tree that was in the way. A work order was put in on the 4th, and after working all night, the MPD had finished removing the tree by the morning of the 5th. Holy shit, guys. Do you not understand how suspicious that looks? This allowed for a clear line of sight from the bathroom window to the Lorraine Motel. Oh yeah, they also removed the bushes while they were at it, so if anyone saw the shooter in the bushes, the police could shrug their shoulders and be like... What bushes? I don't know, the bushes that were there the day before? And the tree? This is crazy suspicious. All of those rather suspicious things are a combination of established fact and sworn testimony by the people involved. This final part was sworn testimony as well, but I'm going to put a big fucking allegedly here because this is a second-hand account told over 30 years after the fact. Yeah, an account. Not our belief, an account. This story came from the sun of Lulu May Shelby, a surgical aide that had been working at St. Joseph's Hospital the night the king was shot and allegedly was the last person to leave the room before he died. I mentioned the king still had a pulse when he was shot. He arrived at the hospital at 6.16pm and his time of death was recorded at 7.05pm, meaning hospital staff spent 15 minutes unsuccessfully trying to save him. Lulu allegedly told her family, including her son, the following story after returning home from work the next morning. King's room was full of doctors and aides, desperately trying to save his life. It was just after 7pm when the chief of surgery entered the room, accompanied by two men in, in suits. They ordered everybody out of the room, with the chief of surgery very, very allegedly telling them, stop working on the N-word and let him die. The men in suits then allegedly removed his breathing tube, while the doctor allegedly smothered him with a pillow. In some tellings of the story, the men were also expectorating? on King's body. What's that mean? Spitting. Jesus. What the fuck? This feels made up. That can't, surely that can't be real. Also, why is the doctor, it doesn't, the chief of surgery of a hospital smothering a patient to death with a pillow just feels like it's out of a movie. This feels, mm, just, this doesn't feel real to me. I just, 
I don't believe people aren't horrible pieces of shit. Like, there's plenty of examples of that in today's episode. But this just feels a bit much, doesn't it? Personally, this part of the conspiracy is a bridge too far for me. Thank you. Places that quote this testimony as irrefutable fact also tend to add that the FBI didn't allow an autopsy to be performed on King to hide his cause of death, and that's just not true. Since I can tell you that King's spleen weighed 80 grams and that his stomach contained 10 cc's of partially digested food fat fragments, I think we can view those sources uh, with a healthy dose of skepticism. According to the doctor that performed the autopsy, King had the heart of a 60-year-old man despite only being 39. This was likely the result of intense stress from his 13 years in civil rights activism. It also meant that the state of his heart and the severe damage the bullet had done, his wounds would almost definitely prove fatal anyway, without the need for him to be smothered. Lulu also died a few months after King, so the whole story is relying entirely on the testimony of what she allegedly told her son once 30 years prior. I hate to bring down those claims for completion's sake, but there's already enough shady stuff going on that we can actually prove as well as the years-long FBI persecution of King. We don't need to add in murderers, doctors bandying around the N-word just for the hell of it. Yeah, it goes too far for me as well, Kevin. I just don't really believe that part. And like you say, the moving of the room and stuff is like, it's already like, we know what's up. Come on. So where does that leave us? We know that the FBI, particularly Hoover, absolutely hated King and wanted to do everything in their power to discredit him and take him out of the equation. We know that there's a lot of suspicious stuff surrounding the events of the assassination, particularly actions taken by a police department that have been compromised by the FBI. We also know that Ray was never found guilty at trial. Despite recanting his guilty plea and filing every appeal they could, he was never given the opportunity to be tried by a jury of his peers. While Ray never went to trial, I did mention rather a rather surprising 99 court verdict at the beginning of this episode, and I'd say it's high time that we examine that case. The Lloyd Jowers trial. Fortunately, we've already covered most of the evidence that was presented in this trial, so we don't need to retrace our steps. The official name of this of the court case was the King family versus Lloyd Jowers and other unknown co-conspirators. Okay, so this is a civil case because it's not the state versus. The official name of the court case was the King family and Lloyd Jowers and other unknown co-conspirators. Okay, well we know it's a civil case then because it's um, the King family and another party rather than the King family and the estate or uh, and the state. So, I think. By 1999, the King family was firmly of the belief that Ray did not kill Martin Luther King and had been used as a patsy. Not only were they all vocal about this in the media, but King's son, Dexter, even visited Ray in prison and told him in person that they knew he was innocent and were doing everything in their power to seek justice. And that's all well and good. Well, who the hell is Lloyd Jowers? Lloyd Jowers owned Jim's Grill, the restaurant below the rooming house. The back door of his shop led directly to the bushes that were definitely never there, so please stop talking about them. According to Jowers, he was paid $100,000 by alleged local monster Frankie Liberto to help organize the assassination. His version of events claims the involvement of Raul, the MPD, and the Mafia. He even went so far as to name Police Lieutenant Earl Clark as the shooter. It sounded like Jowers was involved in some of the planning, but more than anything, he was being used for the location of his restaurant. After Clark allegedly shot King, he passed the Remington rifle through the door to Jowers, who then hid it behind the bar. That way, even if someone could have identified Clark, they wouldn't be able to say that they saw him carrying the murder weapon. Beyond that, the evidence presented was uh, mostly things we've already discussed. After nearly a four-week trial, it took the jur jury only one hour to deliberate. The jury unanimously found that Jowers was responsible, along with conspirators, including government agencies. You know what I said, are responsible rather than guilty, and that's where things start to get a bit interesting. It's already pretty interesting. You see, this wasn't a criminal trial. Oh, okay. 
Oh, oh, okay. And yeah, Americans, you have juries for criminal civil trials as well. I forget. I forget. I'm sorry. Uh, it was a civil suit for wrongful death. Despite being a civil suit, it wasn't about money. The King family was only seeking $100 in damages. They wanted it on the record, in a court of law, that the government was responsible. But that's really hard to do. Thanks to a little thing called sovereign immunity, you can't file criminal or civil charges against the government unless they agree to let you? What? It's like, no, 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 no. I, I, I pass on that. that is, I, I'm not interested. It's like, I got a speed here. It's like, no, 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 I'm not interested in that. Not today. Not today. Maybe some other time. How's that fair? What the fuck? That may come as a shock, but the government was not about to go to court to defend themselves against a conspiracy theory. By naming unknown co-conspirators in their filing, it left the door open for the jury to name government agencies as conspirators without the kings actually having to sue the government. That's pretty clever. You have some big brain lawyers. But because this was a civil case, the burden of proof is dramatically lower. That's what I was discussing at the beginning. The prosecution only needs to show that something is more likely than not, rather than proving it beyond a reasonable doubt. There's a huge difference between a person being 50.1% sure of something and a person being 100% sure of something. Reactions to the verdict are more than a little mixed. The kings felt vindicated. They believed it was finally on record in a court of law that Martin Luther King was assassinated as the result of a conspiracy. The government felt differently, and the Department of Justice decided to reopen the case in 2000 to investigate the evidence that was put forth in the trial. After reviewing all of the evidence, Attorney General Janet Reno declared that she could find no evidence of a conspiracy, that Frank Liberto wasn't a member of the Mafia, and that the Jowers had made up the entire story for financial gain. But that's just what they want you to think. I don't know, man. There's a lot of... This is... It's exactly like the JFK episode. I don't know what happens, but I know in my heart, like, allegedly, that there is way more to this than they're letting on. There's way more to this than the official story. I think if you've listened to this episode and you listen to what Kevin's presented and you think it's like it is in the official narrative, it's not like you're... I'm with this conspiracy theory. <laughs> if you're not, it's like, did you not pay attention? Wrap up. I've laid out as much potential evidence as I can, and I've been as forthright as possible about the credibility of that evidence. So, to you, Simon, and everyone at home, where do you land on this one? Was James Earl Ray acting alone in the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr.? Or do you think he was an unknowing patsy that took the fall as part of a larger FBI conspiracy? In my eyes, the official story leaves a lot to be desired. Ray was an incompetent criminal and a terrible rifleman. Even if he was somehow capable of pulling this off alone, the evidence is really suspicious. The murder weapon covered in fingerprints was left gift-wrapped on the street despite no fingerprints in his room or the bathroom, and the FBI's star witness was a drunk who looked at a picture of Ray and literally said, that's not the guy. On the other hand, the story given in the Jowers trial isn't great either, because Jowers was the main defendant, instead of emphasizing the released FBI documents, it had to focus on Jowers' story. This included a lot of second and third party testimony of events, like the doctor smothering King with a pillow. There's a fair chance that he really did make up his involvement in the hopes of selling his story. If neither of these stories seems great, well that brings us back to all the declassified documents from the FBI and the accounts of police officers that were tasked with protecting King that day. Based on all of that, it looks really bad. There's no direct evidence of a murder conspiracy, but they had already told King to kill himself and he refused to take the hint. It's not unreasonable to think that as his fight against capitalism and for human rights intensified, so too with the response of an increasingly corrupt and vindictive FBI, Jeg Hoover. All I know is that where there's smoke, there's fire, and there's an awful, awful lot of smoke in today's episode. But there wasn't any plume of smoke coming from the bushes, and there are no bushes 
across the street from the hotel and they never were so just keep your mouth shut about the bloody bushes okay yeah lots and lots of smoke isn't there i said it already i said my piece you know how i feel this has been an episode of decoding the unknown thanks for watching or listening if you enjoy it please do leave a review apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast if you're watching on youtube hi there leave a like and i'll see you next time